Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books on Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Peter Mandler, who is Professor of Modern Cultural History at the University of Cambridge, about the crisis of the meritocracy, Britain's transition to mass education since the Second World War. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Dave. Um, th- this is a, an incredibly interesting book, and uh, not, not to date the podcast too much, but it speaks directly to one of the things underpinning what seem to be the great cultural, social, um, and political divides in uh, contemporary Western society. So you've timed it really, really uh, well, I think. Uh, And the the kind of place to start is to know a bit about why you're interested in in education, and, and particularly actually why you're interested in this idea about mass education. Yes, well, I can't claim to have been prescient uh, to have captured a moment in 2020, which uh, I couldn't have known about when I started. But uh, uh, I think the short answer is that, I mean, I, I think like a lot of uh, historians, sadly, I rather took education for granted, maybe because I was working in it and um, it's all around us and so so um, ubiquitous that we just ignore it. Um, I mean, historians have, have, have done really poorly and assessing this, the impact of education on people's lives, despite the fact that it's one of the major features of modern life um, that sprang up pretty much from, from nowhere in the last century. Um, I suppose that what stimulated me was that I got in, involved in representing the, uh, the profession of historians in various functions. I mean, principally through uh, work I did with the Royal Historical Society, and that in turn got me in, in, interested and involved in discussions about how to teach history to the wider uh, audience, um, not just in universities and in the general public, but also in schools. So I've become more and more active in discussions about teaching history in schools. And and I think it was this that woke me up to the the, the, the fact that there that there had been this major transformation just in the last generation or two, which um, which historians really hadn't done justice to. The, the story you tell is, uh, I, I wouldn't say they were, they were kind of competing uh, forces or, or sets of ideas or, or, or camps, but, but, but two very distinct kind of, I suppose, um, approaches to understanding education and understanding what it's for. And, and you call these meritocracy on the one hand and democracy uh, on the other. And it'd be good to kind of introduce them because they they basically kind of power the story that, that runs through the rest of the book. Yeah, I think it's important to say because there's a lot of talk about meritocracy nowadays that um, I don't always mean it in the same sense that other people do. Um, although what I'm trying to show is the historical pedigree of this idea. But basically meritocracy is the assumption that there's only a small group of people that are going to be um, capable of benefiting from the higher levels of education and that the role of the education system is to 
is to give a very, very basic education to the majority and then to winkle out that minority um, who either by dint of native intelligence or hard work or whatever show themselves capable of benefiting from more education. And that almost inevitably was the sort of prevailing um, assumption of education earlier in the 20th century when the state provided only a very basic education to everyone, primary school. Um, and then when it when it started to consider, well, should the state provide secondary education, should it provide higher education, it had to have a means of deciding who, what small numbers of people, but who amongst those small numbers of people should benefit from this. And, and th- this is where I think the idea of meritocracy emerges, that you you can test everyone and work out who's who are the elite um, by nature, not by birth, but by uh, some other some pretty much re- uh, uh, mysterious force. You work out who are the elite, and then you give them the, the education they deserve. But the, m- the majority of the people still get something fairly basic. And I think that was in the middle of the 20th century still the, the prevailing ideal of meritocracy. But after the Second World War, and partly because of the Second World War, and partly just because Britain had become a democratic country, I mean, really, only very recently had all adults been given the vote, um, I think that idea that that the state should provide really high-quality education only for a small elite selected by some kind of exam, that idea gets challenged. And uh, what you get are democratic ideas of education, which say, well, well, maybe it's true that only an elite can benefit from the very highest levels, but surely we should be raising the levels of education for the whole of the of the population um, and delaying as far as possible that selection of, a, of an elite. Uh, and so those two um, ideals, meritocracy, selection of an elite based on some kind of native ability, and democracy, which is a high level of provision for everyone, um, those are increasingly contending after the Second World War. They're, 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 I don't think you can say anything that's happened since the Second World War reflects purely one or the other. They're always mixed up together and in tension with each other. No, I, I, I was really struck in, in some ways, you know, a sort of an alternative uh, title or, or, you know, kind of approach to the book would, would be, if you wanted to be kind of celebrating would be in some ways this kind of sense of a triumph actually of, of democracy, a triumph for a demand that, you know, we would have more, you know, and, and, and kind of better provision for, for absolutely everybody. Uh, and that comes through in all different parts of the education system, um, both in terms of what's going on in schools, but also what's going on in, in higher education. But obviously to explain that, um, I mean, we, we should be wary about saying there are good news stories in, in history, but, you know, to explain that kind of triumph of, of democracy or demand from the, uh, the kind of democratic impulse in education, we need to know a bit about the system that Britain was supposed to have had. Um, and, and the book deals with uh, both pre-World World War II and, and after, but, but I think the question to ask you and the place to, to ground the analysis is with this view that Britain had a kind of tripartite system um, of um, basically a kind of, you know, grammar school for uh, people who are capable of passing exams um, and then other schools for people who, who basically weren't. Um, and it'd be interesting to, to hear about that, you know, kind of 
conventional story of a tripartite system and then the reality actually of a kind of messy and, and fragmented system. Mm. Yeah, so before the Second World War, the state only, uh, only provided primary education to everyone. And um, it provided secondary education to only about 15% of the population. Uh, on the basis of uh, usually of of, a, of an exam at age eleven, what what became known as the eleven plus, um, but um, there was still you know, another five, maybe percent of the population that were um, educating themselves to secondary level in in the private sector. So you know, about a, a, about twenty percent of the of the whole population went to secondary school. Um, after the war, um, everyone was entitled to a secondary education. And basically, the, the the sort of meritocratic system that um, had been established for that fifteen percent um, before the war um, was was carried over, but the but the view was now that everyone should take that test at eleven um, and be assigned to the school that they were um, that was they were suited to, um, and whereas before it had been very patchy as to who got to take the test and who actually succeeded. Um, after the war, there was an amb- ambition to have a uniform system. Everyone um, takes the test. Everyone gets assigned to one of uh, three kinds of schools. The, the, the law didn't te- specify these three kinds of schools, but these were just the assumptions that were prevailing in mid-20th century society, that there would be an elite. It would still probably be only 15 or 20, maybe at most 25% who would be eligible for an academic education at secondary level. Um, there might be another group that w- could, could, could handle a, a technical education that would train them for skilled manual labor. Um, uh, and then the, the majority would weren't really very well specified, but you know, the, the remaining 60 or 70% would just were those who just didn't test into either the grammar schools, the academic schools or the technical schools. And they would be in, well, schools that were, um, uh, had no obvious mission, but were known as secondary modern schools. Now, because in Britain, um, the education system is very decentralized. As I say, the, the legislation requiring secondary education, the famous Butler Act of 1944, didn't actually tell local authorities how to implement secondary education. They just said, you've got to provide schools for the abilities of, of your students. And um, actually, although we imagine that there was this universal system, the 11 plus, and you either got into the grammar school or you later maybe passed into a technical school, or if not, you stayed in the secondary modern school, we imagine that was a uniform national system. Nothing could be further from the truth because every local authority just had to work out. And remember, this is an immediate post-Second World War conditions of austerity and lots of competing demands on public funds, because the welfare state is just um, leaping into existence, um, every local authority had to decide for itself, well, what can we, what kind of education can we provide? And all local authorities are, had already had some grammar schools for about 15% of the population, so they kept those. But what they did with everyone else um, was, uh, as you said, very fragmented. And in most places, um, they didn't provide technical schools because um, technical education was both seen as too expensive, but also, to be fair, it was not highly valued by parents and students um, because it was seen as um, leading to no obvious goal. And if, insofar as people aspired to a high-quality education, they wanted to go to grammar school, even went technical schools, which were seen as second class. 
Um, so what actually emerged in most places was a bipartite system where there are grammar schools for 20, 25% at most, and then secondary modern schools for everyone else. Um, even that probably oversimplifies it because lots of places were just too poor even to provide secondary schools and all age schools where people stayed in school, uh, the same school from, from five to 15. Those schools persisted in many places through the 1950s. So it's a very, um, very lumpy mixed pattern. And actually no one really understood what the actual the state of the, of the education system was in the 1950s because the central government didn't really ask and each locality was on its own to make its own decisions and based on how what it could afford and what it thought was appropriate. I mean, obviously at the same time, um, after the Second World War, there are you know, massive demographic changes and um, British society looks incredibly different by the time we get into the uh, late 1960s and into the 1970s. But that period in at least, say, popular understanding is probably uh, one where um, public and, and maybe kind of, you know, public memory understands one of the most kind of um, major interventions in, into education, uh, really sort of transforming um, the school system. And, and this is the, the coming of, of the comprehensive school. And, and one of the things that, that the book does is it kind of continues the narrative about um, public opinion and, and public demands for high quality education, um, rather than just concentrating on what we have at the moment, which I, I guess is a kind of more sort of elite-led understanding of the imposition of, of, of comprehensives. Um, so, so, could you say a bit about the kind of you know the, the sort of the comprehensive moment and and the drivers um, in terms of public demand for that? Yeah, I think insofar as there is any memory of this, um, it all hinges on one man, Tony Crossland, who the Labour Education Minister, who in 1965 said that we will have comprehensive schools everywhere. And um, that caused all sorts of problems because not everyone wanted comprehensive schools and it was seen as a top-down imposition. Uh, and I think that um, that's almost entirely wrong, that insofar as we have that popular memory of the comprehensive moment. And I think instead, uh, what, what I try to do is, as you say, turn to the experiences of the vast majority of people in the 1950s, um, what their um, changing expectations of education are, what their changing experiences of uh, education and the workplace are. Um, and I think, you know, we tend to see the 1950s as sort of sleepy, dozy period. And this is because we get, again, popular memory thinks the 60s is exciting and the 50s is boring and conservative. Um, nothing, again, could be further from the truth. The 1950s is a period of incredible dynamism, social change, um, demographic change, because the birth rate just leaps up. This is what we now know as the, as the baby boom, what was known at the time as the bulge, though not very well known. Huge growth in uh, birth rates after the war, which had been very low before the war. Um, there's also a huge a change in the labor market in that the proportion of people working in unskilled manual labor starts to drop very rapidly, um, and jobs that re either require more education or seem to be closely, more closely connected to education are proliferating. Um, I think the welfare state has raised people's expectations, especially of health and education, um, of, again, of a high uh, universal standard for everyone. Not all aspects of the welfare state do that, but I think in health and education, um, most citizens think, well, I've got the vote, and I've got... Uh, social citizenship, you know, participation, 
Um, and what the state should be providing me with is is really good infrastructure, you know, good communications, good transport, good healthcare, and good education. Um, there's also a lot of physical mobility. People are um, uprooting themselves and moving out to suburbs and new housing estates, and um, and um, and also what what is sometimes called psychic mobility. You know, there's a very strong expectation on the part of parents as well as children that the next generation, the generation that's being born after the war, is going to have a different life and a better life than their parents. They're going to move away from their parents' homes and communities. They're going to move away from the kind of jobs that their parents had, and they're going to move away also from their parents' ways of thinking. And, um, I mean, long before, you know, the sort of so supposed youth rebellions of the late 60s, there, there is, I think, this strong expectation amongst parents as well as children that you know the younger generation will have a better different life and this is i think translates very quickly in the 1950s into the the preference for the best available education for everyone and the best available education for everyone the best available education as seen by contemporaries in the 50s was the grammar school and and yet the grammar school was by definition only limited to about 20 or 25% of the population. There was a kind of cutoff. There were X number of places in any locality, and you took the 11 plus, and if you got a sufficiently high score, you got one of those places, and if you didn't, you didn't. And um, that was seen as a unfair, unreasonable barrier to the best education for all. And so already in the early 1950s, there's very substantial evidence that most working class parents want a grammar school education for their children. Most working class parents aren't going to get it because the middle classes are disproportionately successful at the 11 plus, and that that is leading to growing resentment and a demand, well, why can't we have grammar schools for all? That is a single school in every community that everyone goes to, which has an academic um, curriculum um, and to which everyone can go. And it's, you know, you don't get the sheep from the goats weeded out 11, but Everyone is treated as a as an equal citizen at least until sixteen or maybe eighteen. So, I think that ambition and appetite for grammar schools for all is very powerful in the fifties. And frankly, most local authorities by the late fifties have woken up to that. Especially when the um, the baby boom hits secondary age, which it does in nineteen fifty six. We can be very precise about that. You know, you can see. High birth rates in 45 leads to large numbers of 11 year olds in 1956 inexorably, and larger and larger numbers 57, 58, 59. And when that baby boom hits, those parents have very high expectations. And they say, to hell with 11 plus. We want uh, the best school for all of our children. Um, we need a single school. And they th thought of that as a grammar school. But of course, the way what, what that translated to in public policy was a comprehensive school, that is, a school which took all the children in at 11 and then maybe sorted them out at later dates um, as to their future destinations. And that's the comprehensive school. What's going on with higher education um, in, I, I guess, similar and, and, and then also slightly later periods in, you know, th this similar kind of, you know, public demand, particularly actually, you know, you mentioned sort of the sense of mobility, but also actually particular demands around how Britain might be, Better prepared to be, um, you know, a scientific, uh, technological state into the 1960s. Yeah, again, you can look at this top down or bottom up. I mean, I should say that you know, uh, Tony Cross in 1965 
by the by the time Tony Crossland became education minister and says everyone should plan to, to move to comprehensive schools, three quarters of English authorities and all of the Scottish and Welsh authorities were already planning to do that, and some of them had, had already begun. Um, so the process was well underway before Tony Crossland came along. And similarly, I think those those tremendous forces of demand from below, just as you can tell, you know, 11 years after 1945, 1956, uh, 18 years um, after 1945 is 1963. And planners and local authorities, and even, I think by this time, the central government knew that if more and more people are going to go to um, comprehensive schools or grammar schools or someplace where they can take school exams, O-levels and A-levels, then more and more people are going to be eligible for higher education as well. Um, and there's, there's almost an, a, an, a, an automatic knock-on effect. That is, as soon as government realizes, as it does in the early 60s, that the number of O-level candidates is growing very rapidly and way outstripping the capacity of the grammar schools, um, they realize that they're they're going to have to prepare for a, a much larger cohort of higher education candidates as well, and they start to build new universities. Um, and um, but there is also a top down answer, which is, I mean, faced with this demand, politicians and planners and civil servants and local authorities do start to change their policy, but they also, you know, partly for their own um, self love, I think, like to develop arguments for this that appeal to them. Um, and I think there is a, a an, argue, an argument made across the political spectrum in the late 50s and early 60s in what's known as the sort of post-Sputnik moment, post-Sputnik moment, when the space race begins between Britain and the, um, uh, between US and the USSR. And that has an effect um, on all countries around the world. There is, I think, is a feeling that a a successful society needs a lot of science and technology, and therefore it needs more higher education. Um, and that uh, that's going to be important for economic growth as well as for Cold War purposes. Um, and economists develop the idea of human capital, which basically tells policymakers it's okay to invest money in education because it will pay off in future tax returns and economic growth. And so there are a whole slew of, of you know, powerful arguments for policymakers to expand higher education, especially science and technology. But I think they were under intense pressure for quite other reasons, having to do with democracy and people's desire for more and more education for their children. They're under a lot of pressure to deliver that anyway. There's a big um, reaction, both um, in terms of elite narratives about education, but, but, but also actually in, in terms of individuals' behaviour by the time we're getting into the 1980s. And, and th that will be important for um, the, re the rest of our conversation, but I, I don't want to kind of drill down too much into that because I, I'm very interested in um, the moment that comes sort of uh, towards the middle end of the book, which is the um, renewed expansion of both uh, choice, uh, kind of, uh, school level, and then demand for higher education. And, and I'm interested in in how, um, I guess, kind of narratives um, of, of HE shifted. For example, you know, we, we've got um, a, a big expansion of arts and social sciences um, over sort of a, a long uh, period, but now we're seeing more students who are interested in things like business, computing, coding, 
um, and, and science again. And, and so what kind of, of, of things are driving this um, student demand? What, what sort of you know, changes in society are the backdrop for this? Yeah, I have to say that um, I think what happens in the 70s and 80s in particular remains mysterious even to me. <laughs> I've been studying it for years. Um, there is, um, again, without going into the details, the 1970s are a very confusing period. It, those of us who lived through them can testify to that. Um, and there was a loss of confidence in education and the power of education, um, both by politicians who were who were cash-strapped anyway and were desperate to save money some one way or another, but also, I think, by ordinary citizens, parents, and children, unsure um, what kind of uh, world that, that they were moving into. I mean, the deindustrialization was beginning to gather pace, and people just didn't know um, whether the, you know, the, the, the outcome was going to be mass unemployment or sort of new kinds of manual labor or or whether, as happened, in fact, the, the the economy would start to grow again on a new basis, more skilled, more the so-called knowledge economy. Uh, but, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So many cross-cutting uh, um, factors in the 70s. And everything was sort of put on hold. And then what's interesting is, yes, the, the, the um, uh, demand starts to recover in the early 80s. Um, now, one thing you could just say, I mean, you, you could say simply, and I think truthfully, that the, the trajectory of the 50s and 60s was just resumed. And in fact, you can, most of the graphs of participation show a straight line from, say, 1950 to 1990 or 2000. It's just that there's a dip in the 70s and a surge in the 80s. So a course correction, you could call it. Um, it may be that the world, you know, the future becomes clearer. You know, deindustrialization is, 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 um, is a fact and new jobs are appearing in new places. Um, I think also that uh, people's ambitions and, and hopes for uh, a better life for their children resume. And again, education is closely associated with that better life. Um, again, the politicians continue to say, in fact, they say it much more vociferously, vociferously now, we need this for economic growth. Um, we need more science and technology because that's what creates economic growth. and. Um, uh, and so they have their own reasons for this, but those politicians' reasons for the growth of higher education in particular are very different from the participants. Um, and the, the best illustration of that is the one that you just alluded to, which is that as more and more people participate in higher education, and as we know, it starts to grow very rapidly from the late 80s. Um, actually, it's already growing from the early 80s. As more and more people participate in higher education, a larger proportion of them are participating, are taking arts and social sciences subjects, um, and a smaller proportion are taking science and technology subjects. So people are, are piling into higher education, not with a view towards, you know, taking STEM subjects, as we now call them, and boosting the economy, or even necessarily boosting their own personal income. They're, they're piling into higher education to do the things that they, they think they're good at, that they like. And for most of these new entrants, those are arts and humanities, and especially social social studies subjects. Um, and so uh, it's, it's something the politicians try to ignore. It's surprising to me uh, that even today they're not really aware of the trend, but that the proportion of, of higher uh, of university degrees in the STEM subjects dropped uh, every, almost every year from 1963 to 
um, 19, uh, 2012, um, a period of uh, growth in higher education, which also led to a relative decline in the share of science and technology degrees. Um, and, and the politicians basically just tried to ignore this or tried to exhort people to behave differently, but nothing they said or did made any difference until the last 10 years. <laughs> I mean, there's so much we, we, we could talk about on, on higher education. And, and obviously, like, you know, two, two academics will naturally gravitate to, to start talking about universities and university politics, particularly now. And, and I was struck as well by, by the kind of, you know, the, the, the echoes of um, the, the early to, to mid 1980s um, that, that we've got today. But I think I'd like to, to sort of wrap up with a bigger question, which the, the end of the book uh, grapples with. And, and this is that you're talking about the rise of, of choice uh, in schools. You're talking about um, the education system responding to public demand, you know, whether it's in terms of kind of, you know, better schools for, for all or the, the, the ability to support children right the way through into higher education for, for, for better lives. And yet one reading of this entire story is that this triumph of the democratic demand does little or nothing to tackle social inequalities in Britain. And indeed, the education is essentially a sort of a, a bit of a red herring, really, for, for those who are interested in um whether it's promoting social mobility or, or tackling inequality. Uh, and I'm interested to know about that sense of a, maybe a, a failure of, of education policy, or actually is it more that we're just looking in completely the wrong place for um, how social inequalities function? Yeah, well, these are very um, profound issues, and I think also riddled with misconceptions, much as, as discussion of meritocracy is. Uh, it's very hard to resolve them in, in a few minutes. I mean, I think I would say that um, most of the evidence from economists and, and sociologists is that um, the provision of education doesn't make a great deal of difference to the um, levels of inequality in society or even levels of social mobility. Those are different things. Um, and, and the reason is simply that there are much more powerful forces acting. Um, that have to do with labor markets, that is the kind of jobs that are available, and the work that parents um, do to promote their children um, uh, outside of the education system. Um, that doesn't mean that education is unimportant for um, equality, uh, because uh, this is what I call at the end of the book, the, the race between democracy um, and technology. Um, Sorry, that's not right. <laughs> um, uh, the race between democracy and education. Um, uh, because I think the, the, the democratic demand for high level of, 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 uh, of education for everyone and, and a good quality of education for everyone keeps the minimum rising. So when you extend, this is why it's the race between democracy and education. When you extend educational opportunity, the most privileged people tend to benefit most from it. That's why it doesn't really affect inequality or social mobility. But um, democracy sees that and says, that's not fair. Why are the, the more privileged benefiting more, like with the 11 plus? And the same thing is applying today, I think. 
And so they demand for an improved general level um, um, from the bottom. And so that causes the education system to start to catch up, um, um, providing um, higher levels of, of provision for everyone rather than uh, allowing a few to benefit um, more, more than the rest. And then there's a further extension of education and the privileged benefit more from it again. And this goes on and on and on. So it's a race between the extension of, of education and, and the democratic demand for a high general level. And um, I think that that uh, that's leading to a uh, higher level of education for everyone, which is a good thing, not just in terms of inequality or or social mobility, but in terms of health and happiness. I mean, high levels of education are correlated with lots of things apart from economic status. And I think it's good for democracy because it, it, it does um, make people feel equally valued. Um, and if, if you didn't have that, that democratic pressure to keep standards for the, the, the ordinary person high, then I think education would have more of an effect in um, reinforcing privilege and reproducing inequality than it does. So it's not a council of despair to say that education is not the most important factor in making for a more equal or more mobile society. Education does lots of other things that are necessary for a more equal and a more mobile society. Um, but frankly, if we want more equality, um, then we need more equality <laughs> in all aspects of life. Um, those countries with the most social mobility and with the highest levels of equality, countries like Scandinavia and the Netherlands, are countries with lower income and wealth differentials than we have in Britain, um, or indeed in France and Germany, and not really having anything to do with our different educational systems, which actually are quite similar in many respects. In terms of your next project, I mean, it, it, it seems a bit a bit sort of mean to ask you what what are you going to do next after writing such a a, a comprehensive and an important book. But um, are you going to be kind of thinking through, you know, maybe resolving some of those uh, social mobility uh, tensions and questions? Thinking of comparative work, as, as you mentioned, with other other nations, or or is it time to do something completely? <laughs> Well, I, I, there are two answers to that. Uh, I mean, one is, I mean, the true, the, the, the sort of visceral, visceral answer is that I'm the kind of historian that does something different every six or seven years, and I'll probably move on to something um, quite different. Um, but I, I do have a project with some former students of mine, Laura Carter and Chris Jeppesen, um, which is coming to fruition now, um, which is to, to write a history of universal secondary education from below. That is to, to talk about how the secondary school becomes a central part of everyone's lives after the Second World War, and what are the consequences of way, going way beyond these issues of social mobility, um, thinking about the place of the school in the community, um, thinking about the, the range of experiences that people have in schools, you know, art and music and science and, and sport, um, thinking about um, how your secondary school days are important for your adolescence and for your sense of your identity. Um, so that's a huge subject, which again has been re remarkably underplayed by historians um, outside of the history of education. Um, and we've got fantastic new sources as well, um, using the birth cohort studies, which are representative samples of the whole population and track them through their lives. Um, so I think we'll be able to tell a very rich and textured story, which will get down to 
levels of experience that my kind of bird's eye view in the in the current book um, wasn't really able to capture. And I hope everyone will recognize themselves in this story of because everyone goes to secondary school after the Second World War and very few people did before.